don't know much about economics, but I know a bad investment when I see it. Listen to the ad I found. House for sale. This building is recently developed. The building has three flats. Two of the flats has three beds and one luxury sitting room. One of the flats has three bedrooms. Each flat has its own kitchen and toilet, one garage. Price, 100,000 British pounds. Place, Kabul, Afghanistan. Would you buy that land? It's not a good time in history to talk about investments. Many of you have lost money and your pension funds have dropped. And some of our children's RESPs have decreased to the point where they will be approaching retirement before we can send them to university. <laughs> Layoffs and plant shutdowns and slash budgets are the order of the day. <clears throat> and about 26 centuries ago, Jerusalem was also in economic meltdown. I've talked about Jeremiah before. I've, I've preached about this passage before, but I promise you it's not the same sermon. But I love Jeremiah because I am persuaded by his sheer audacity. Jeremiah lived in the time just before Jerusalem was taken by Babylon. And he knew that Babylon would eventually conquer and he knew that a good portion of Jerusalem society would be deported to Babylon, leaving Jerusalem without leadership, a desolate wasteland in the aftermath of conflict. Jeremiah is a prophet. That means he is someone who speaks on God's behalf. Sometimes it means that he predicts the future. But usually his role is to speak the word of God to God's people. Seven times in 15 verses, he says, thus says the Lord, or the word of the Lord. Those terms are signals, and whenever we encounter them in scripture, we know it's time to pay attention, because God is speaking. When we encounter Jeremiah delivering God's word in chapter 32, he is imprisoned by his own king because he has predicted an unhappy future for Jerusalem and King Zedekiah. The people of Israel are close to losing their promised land, the land that God promised to Abraham so long before. And they're going to lose it not only because Babylon will conquer the city, but because the people of Jerusalem will be physically removed from their land, carried away kicking and screaming by the enemy. For these people, land is not just about security. This is the land that God gave them. And now it seems that that land is being taken away. So here we have God telling Jeremiah to buy land in Jerusalem. Not only is it an order to buy a field in a war zone, but also to buy land in a city 
that will soon be deserted. Jeremiah isn't going to be around to enjoy this land. There will be no one to plow the fields and scatter the seeds. Unless, unless there's some hope that the exiles will one day return to their land. Unless this is an investment based on future projections, based on the hope of restoration. What Jeremiah is doing is demonstrating a concrete action of hope. He is doing something that the people around him can witness for themselves, something that publicly proclaims Jeremiah's obedience to God and his faith in God's future. He buys the land and he puts the deeds in a safe place because this poor, useless land will be worth something one day. It is an action that speaks louder than words and promises the people of Jerusalem that they will return home one day. To most of us, this seems like a risky business. Would you buy stock based on a slim to nil chance that it will grow in value? Every market indicator showed that this land was a bad investment, except one, the promise of God. I wonder what friends and neighbors of the original members of this congregation said to them when they decided to mortgage their houses to build this church. Ministry has always been a risky business. In the early church, Christianity struggled to define itself and spread in the hostile territory of Roman rule. And in those days, faith could get you killed. Today in Canada, Christianity will probably not get you killed, so much as evoke a kind of mild skepticism or a raised eyebrow. Most people don't think that God is worth very much, if God exists at all. Even investing our time in worship on a Sunday morning is incomprehensible to many friends and relatives. Those people who walk by the front doors with their dog on a leash while we're in here, they must wonder what we're doing in here and why we would bother. Despite the increasing rarity of faithful practice in our culture, you and I do invest. Our shared ministry is an investment. We invest in a future that only God can see. We invest so that our children and our community will have a chance to grow in faith. We put heart and soul into this church as a living body that proclaims new life and new hope. Our ministry, whether it's music or study, whether you make a sandwich for Evangel Hall or you teach in Connect Zone, or you make tea, or you knit pneumonia vests, or you visit the sick or greet at the door, or put the letters on the sign on the front lawn of the church. Those are investments 
in God's future. We are just like Jeremiah, buying a piece of land that nobody else wants. But we buy it with a promise that something will grow. This is putting faith into practice. Buying the deed to land that nobody else wants and putting that deed in a safe place as a sign of our faith that one day the land will be valuable. Our faith tradition is steeped in apparently bad investments. We follow a savior who wasn't much to look at, who came preaching humility and service and love. He wasn't a mighty warrior. He rode a donkey, not a great white horse. The original disciples had no education and were frequently slow on the uptake. God has consistently endowed his people with resources for ministry, even though we may be the most motley crew imaginable. God invests in us. Tonight, millions of people are going to tune in to watch the Academy Awards. And some of you may have seen the movie Slumdog Millionaire, which may very well win Best Picture. It's about children in a Mumbai slum. The children are the slum dogs. And one of them, by accident and by fate, ends up in the national spotlight on the Indian version of Who Wants to Be a Millionaire. The producers of this film intend it to be an authentic representation of the lives of poor children. And it is extremely powerful. It shows children who have to fight for every morsel of food, who flee foes at every turn, chased by corrupted cops who don't care. Children blinded on purpose so they will be better beggars squalid and dirty and without hope beyond the next minute or two. Give or take a little Hollywood, Bollywood hyperbole and slanted storytelling, the movie tells some truth about the way children live in the Dharavi slum in what used to be Bombay. The Toronto Star in an article yesterday called it a feral wasteland with little evidence of order, community, or compassion. That is at least what the slum looks like to outsiders who dare not look too closely. Certainly that's what it looks like to us, and definitely not someplace worth investing in. What kind of hope is there for those kind of children? But what if we go a little deeper and look beyond the camera lens and in the chaotic horror of that slum, we find women who run successful businesses out of their homes, and families who have bounded together in cooperatives to carve out some kind of safety and health. What if there is a creative and imaginative and resourceful part in those people that enables them to live beyond the limits of our vision for them? On the surface, there seems very little point investing in that kind of community. But there is, of course, more than the eye can see. 
Our investments in ministry and mission are investments in what we cannot yet see. Potential that has yet to be fulfilled. And the seed that we plant today will one day bear fruit, although sometimes it will be years before we can snack on that fruit. I think youth ministry is a really good example. I mean, there are certainly immediate indicators to whether our youth ministry is successful, but the proof is in the pudding, and it's not until 20 years later when you can find out whether those young people still have a relationship with Jesus Christ. That is how you measure success. But our challenge is to use eyes of faith to trust God in a radical way. God who can and does take whatever society throws away and redeem it. We invest in hope that God will cause deserts to bloom and springs to flow in a wasteland. We give our whole selves to a God that the rest of our culture doesn't pay any attention to. We invest in what society has thrown away beginning with God himself. We invest in the poor. We invest in prayer to a God that we can't see. We invest in the old and the dying. Why? Because we believe in redemption. Because we believe in new life. We believe that fields will be planted in desolate wastelands. We believe that children will one day run and play in former war zones. We believe that our church will flourish under God's guidance. And we believe in Jesus Christ, God's only Son, who was conceived by the Holy Ghost, impossible, who was born of the Virgin Mary, impossible, who suffered under Pontius Pilate, impossible that a savior could suffer, was crucified and died and was buried, impossible that a savior could die. And on the third day, he rose again from the dead. Absolutely impossible. Or is it? Those who can't see what we see will tell us we're crazy. They will call us names for believing the impossible and investing in a sure loss. But victory is certain. And when we invest our money and our time and our talent in shared ministry with Jesus Christ, we are investing in hope. God's future is a sure thing. And I would stake my life on it. And I invite you to also stake your lives on the promise of God's future. Amen.